No, I'm just kidding. I warned them before. It took me a while to read them over. And I'm sure I'll probably mess them up as well. But anyway, welcome again, Faith Evangelical Church. We are journeying through the Gospel of John. We're heading towards the end, the last turn here. We're in John chapter 20. And uh, we're not going to be moving too far today from where we were last week because this is sort of a part two of last week's sermon. Last week we were uh, in John chapter 20, verses 11 through 18, and we're going to be in that again today. Uh, Last week we spoke about Mary Magdalene and um, her response to seeking after Jesus, weeping for Jesus first, and then finding him and clinging to him. And we we made some applications on how we can um, use her example in our life to really yearn and find the Lord. And so today we are going to uh, read through this again, and we're going to change our focus a little bit today, and we're going to talk about this risen Jesus. So in verse 11, uh, it should be up on your screen, but if not, and follow along in your Bibles, chapter 20 of, of the Gospel of John, verse 11. And so, but Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping, and so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, because they've taken away my Lord and I don't know where they've laid him. And when she had said this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing there. She did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Who are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabbani, which means teacher. Verse 17, and this is where we're really going to focus today on verse 17. She said to her, I'm sorry, Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my father and your father and my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he has said these things to her. So here we are standing uh, with the risen Lord. The first time we are seeing him in the gospel of John after his death. We did talk a little bit about that last week, but this week I really want to focus on two major doctrines that I believe John is trying to point out to us here and that is the resurrection and ascension. One of the worst mistakes, I don't know about you, but one of the worst mistakes I ever made as it relates to my home was forgetting to pay my house insurance. Our property insurance lapsed, and since it lapsed without payment, the company would not reinstate us. It was their policy. I had to get a specialist on board to help make that situation right. That specialist, of course, being my wife, got on the phone, and to use another slang term, she straightened them out. She got us reinstated. We had to pay the entire premium up front, but the situation was made right, at least with the insurance company. We use the term to make right or to make something right for many situations, um, especially when it comes to estranged relationships. In order to make relationships right again, interaction has to take place. P- 
People sometimes need to forgive. People sometimes need to apologize. In any case, they must come to a mutual agreement about the situation at hand. Other things such as debts, as I mentioned before, obligations, or failing to fulfill your end of a bargain, in order to make that situation right, most of the time a transaction has to take place. Could be a transaction of payment, a conversation, or some other form of reconciliation that smooths things over so both parties can be satisfied and move on from the wrong that was done. And so in all cases, making something right implies that something was in fact wrong. We, we think of making things right in our modern day. We think of words such as justice, restitution, restoration, and other words come to mind. So in our text today, part two of last week's message, we see the proof that our relationship with God, the debt that we owe him, the restoration that needed to take place, the justice that needed to happen, all came to pass in one very important transaction. Now, Jesus made several things right on his, at his death on the cross, but most important as it relates to us being made right before God as image bearers to the world, his resurrection and ascension were the actions that completed this most important overall transaction. So what we're going to do is I'd like to dive into this text and look at the resurrection and ascension, as John is showing us and telling us here, not only about how Jesus made us right before God with both of those doctrines, but also why and how he now calls us to be those make writers out into the world, if that's even a word or a phrase. So God has made us right so we can go out and make the world right. And so John shows us uh, several different things here. First of all, he shows us in this passage, in the verse that I said is sort of our anchor text, verse 17, he shows us that the resurrection makes us right before God the Father. The resurrection makes us right before God the Father. So we have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, yet all one God. Individual persons, yet one God. And the resurrection makes us right with the Father. Listen to what Jesus says to Mary. Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. And again, the, the reason he says stop clinging to me, because this is a post-ministry Jesus. This is not the Jesus that was walking on the earth necessarily in that same form. He's a re, he is now resurrected. He has his new glorified body. And that relationship that we have to him now is not like it was when the apostles were following him around Galilee. It's a different relationship. Some people say, stop clinging to me for I've not yet ascended to the Father. In other words, hey, I'm going to be here for a while, so you don't have to cling to me. I'm not going anywhere. Um, but I, I believe that this is a new relationship. But yet, he says, go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father. My God and your God. Now, this is new language for John. John's drawing our attention to this. 
And so in order to understand how Jesus makes us right, his resurrection makes us right with the Father, we have to first understand why things are wrong with the Father. And the first thing I know most of us know that sin separates us from God. And that's the easy part to understand. What the hard part to understand is why does sin separate us from God? Now, we could say that what, it, what in fact is true, God is holy, but it's virtually impossible to explain just how holy and righteous and just God is. Um, it's, it's very hard to even over-exaggerate his holiness. And this is why sin corrupts. Like if you had a, if you had a, a, a clear glass of water right here, and you just took one tiny little itty-bitty drop of dye and dropped it in, it contaminates the whole glass. The whole glass may turn pink. And that's what sin, God cannot be with sin. The Father cannot be in the presence of sin. We can't come to him just on the basis of our sinful humanity. So what had to happen is, is we needed a mediator to be able to reconcile that relationship. So the resurrection, which more broadly means rescue from death, because resurrection means a dead human being being brought back to life as a new alive human being. Why do I say that? Because a lot of times when we think of resurrection, we think of maybe a spirit body or a some sort of illusion or some sort of ghost. That's not what this means. The word resurrection means not dead anymore. And that was a foreign concept to people at this time in the first century. They believed in angels. They believed in that. But the resurrection was supposed to happen at the end of time, not in the middle of time. So this was a super phenomenon. It rescues us from death, which is the penalty for sin. And it's at the center of the gospel, the resurrection. If you go through the book of Acts, The New Testament Christians, that's all they spoke about was resurrection. We don't hear about going to heaven anywhere in the Gospels. I'm sorry, in the uh, book of Acts. We are talking, we're, we're being taught about this gospel message. And the core center of the gospel message is resurrection, which now means Jesus is showing us here. We can now call God our father. His father is our father. His God is our God. We can relate, commune, and fellowship with the Father because sin and death is wiped out in Christ. We are now children of God. Children of God. I know this is, it's hard to understand, especially if you've had an estranged relationship with a father. Uh, Psychologists say that, that it's hard for people that had bad relationships with their father to understand the concept of father and God. Now, I don't know if I agree with that because in my flesh, I can't even understand what the concept of father is as it relates to God. God has to make me a new creature, which now presupposes that that other estranged relationship with my human father isn't going to affect this relationship with my, new, with my father in heaven. There's nothing that can come between us. It's a love and it's a relationship that is impossible to break. He has adopted us. Romans 8, 16 to 17 says, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, we are heirs also. 
heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. So this resurrection is the reason why this happens. Now I'm going to explain that a little bit more. Why does the resurrection make that happen? Well, in Romans 4.25, it says, He, meaning Jesus, who was delivered over because of our wrongdoings and was raised for our justification. He was raised for our justification. So what this means is that we are now no longer guilty before God from a judicial perspective, from a judicial sense. In other words, uh, this word justification is a judicial term. It's not something that is uh, uh, affecting you physically. When you become justified before God because of the resurrection in Jesus, it's because you are in Christ now. Jesus has been vindicated from death. We are now a part of his body. And now God, as he looks at Christ's innocent death and resurrection, he now includes us in that, and he is now our representative. We are now under him. The resurrection is a judicial vindication. It means it's the action of clearing someone from blame or suspicion. Christ was the faithful, righteous Messiah, and this verdict of righteousness over you, this verdict of Jesus being raised and you being justified before him can only happen by being unified with Christ and sharing in that resurrection with him. See, without this vindication, without this, this, um, this, this verdict over us that says not guilty, without that, we are absolutely hopeless. We're still in our sin. We're ostracized from God. We're still guilty by God, forever enemies. But because of Christ's resurrection, those that believe in him take part in that, and now we are looked at as not guilty. This is a, this is a future judgment that is happening right now in the present if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. God has promised to carry you through to that final judgment where you will, in fact, be not guilty on judgment day. And he's given our, the spirit to us to guarantee that. So the resurrection also proves, with all that said, that Jesus was the innocent lamb that defeated death. And he had first secured justification for himself. Because, see, if he was guilty, he could have never been risen from the dead. But because he was innocent, it, when, when God looks upon the risen Jesus Christ, and him coming out of that grave fully alive with that new glorified body shows that God approved of what he has done. It's a valid, valid atonement. It's a valid justification. <clears throat> so we see here that God promised this forgiveness from long ago. And again, remember John is paralleling the two gardens. The Garden of Eden, where we became guilty, and now the garden where the tomb is, where Jesus is perceived to be the gardener, we receive our justification. So this proves that we are forgiven and now we are free now to be, have that communion with God as father. <clears throat> God created, or I should say, treated Jesus at the cross as if we lived, as if he lived our life. He treated Jesus at the cross 
as if he lived your life. That's what we deserved. So he could treat us like we lived Jesus's life. What we do not deserve. But because of the justification in the resurrection, we are able to receive that. Now, this resurrection opens the way for all who trust in Jesus to follow him in a spiritual resurrection and a physical resurrection at the judgment. So when Christ returns, you will be, your, your body will be physically raised and you will get a new body. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. This is our hope. And that new body will be glorified. Sin will not have an effect on it anymore. You will not have temptation. You will not have uh, tears of mourning. You'll have tears of joy because of that resurrection in that body. But that begins now in your spiritual resurrection. The guarantee of that starts now by you being made alive in Christ. And the power that raised up Jesus from the grave is what gives life to these mortal bodies so that way we can be born from above or born again. So the, t- the resurrection is tied in very, very tightly to our salvation. There must be that spiritual resurrection in order for the physical resurrection to happen. So God, this is another thing that the resurrection is showing us, that God the Father wants us to have this communion with him so that he can now use us and here it goes, he's made us right and he's making all things right so that his people can go out and make the world right through the power of the Holy Spirit. But the first thing you have to get here is that God wants you to look at him as father. The father wants to be truly your father. He wants you to come to him as a child would go to his father with that childlike faith. So some application here is the first thing, how do, we, how do we flesh this out in a real life scenario? Well, we should literally and truly expect from the father, just like a child would expect his father to protect him, his father to stand up for him, his father to always be there for him, his father to care for his needs, his father to help him when he is desperate, his father to be there to rejoice with. That's the type of relationship God the Father has, wants to have with us, which he intended from the very beginning. And this is why God is, quote unquote, righteous, because that was his plan. And seemingly we thought the plan was knocked off course. But no, this is how that relationship becomes perfect and super focused. We are his adopted children. We, just as he is God, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, We share in that relationship as adopted children. We should talk to God as father. Talk to him as father. When you pray to the father, the reason you're able to pray to the father is because of the blood of the son. Yes, Jesus is fully God. Father is fully God. The Holy Spirit's fully God. They are all one God. But God desires us to come to him as Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. And you know the rest. We are to go to him and we are to talk to him. And as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord will show compassion to those who fear him. 
So fear is revere. Fear is revere. It's not scared of you. I'm scared of you. No, none of us would be scared of our gentle earthly father. We would go to him. We would run to him when there's something wrong. We would go to him first. Think about it as you, as you think through your childhood. Live for God as father. Live for your father. We can now be welcomed into his new world, the kingdom of God. We are now in Christ. He is, his God is our God. His father is our father. We are disciples welcomed into this new realm called the kingdom of God to live for God the father. Like that angled mirror in your hand at all times, reflecting God's glory out into the world. And you receiving glory? No, you're reflecting it back up to him. I want you to imagine that when you're out and doing and you're living your life, you are no longer a slave, you are a son. And if a son, then an heir through God in Galatians. <clears throat> we, be, we, we must, this is proof of us being in the kingdom, is that we must be also led by the Father. Because a lot of times, I don't know about you, but I talked uh, last week, we talked about a woman losing her child, you know, in, in, in Target and she went crazy and she, you know, a lot of times it's not the child that gets lost. Sometimes the father drops back a little bit and he sort of lets us walk ahead. He trains us first. He teaches us to depend on him. And then he lets us walk through that valley sometimes. And so during those dark times, we have to depend on the Father and know that He is going to lead us. This is proof of your adoption. Romans 8, 14, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. We have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear. You've received the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The life of David is, is such a great example. If you take the study through Second uh, Samuel, First and Second Samuel, first couple chapters of Kings, David just was so dependent on God, his Father. He was so dependent on being led by Him through terrible times, through great times. He never gave up his faith. He never, for one time, ever thought that God has left me to to myself. He is always there. He chose even to be punished by God Himself rather than by his enemies or by any famine or anything like that. He said, I want to put my hands, even in, an, in the hands of an angry God, even. If I've disobeyed, I can know that my father is going to faithfully, lovingly discipline me. So be led by the father. Now also look what Jesus says in this passage too. He says, stop clinging to me. I haven't ascended to my father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my father and your father, my God and your God. Now, John is really, you know, he's, he's very specific about his words. We were talking about this in Sunday school today. He's very specific about his words. You may get something like in the book of Mark talks about, remember when people came and said, hey, your mother and your brothers are here? And Jesus said, these are my mother and my brethren. Remember that? That was in Mark. But John never records that. The first time John ever talks about Jesus being a brother is right here after the resurrection. So we have to pay attention to that. And then he also talks a lot more in chapter 21 about this brotherly relationship that he wants to have with us in this dialogue that we're going to get to in a few years with Peter. But Jesus' resurrection allows us now to relate to him as a brother, which is really, really neat. You see, Jesus says, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother, 
and sister and mother in the passage I was just referring to. See, this is a really tough passage because if you look at it, Jesus is rejecting, uh, I shouldn't say that's a harsh word. Jesus is prioritizing the relationship with those who do his will and those that love him over his very own flesh and blood family. He puts it before them. So that doesn't mean I'm trying to say, choose this over that, over this. I'm trying to show you how important this brotherly relationship is to Christ. He wants you to prioritize it as the number one relationship in your life. Before family, before children, before mother, before father, before husband, before wife. And when you do that, you will be a better husband, better wife, better brother, better sister, better mother, better father. That's the beauty of it. You're not sacrificing anything there in that relationship. You're only making it richer by putting it in the proper perspective. So Jesus, he gives us this brotherhood. His resurrection also makes us pure as he is pure. You see, we are not absolutely pure right now, obviously. Right, we are we are not uh, pure. We were talking about this Wednesday in in our Bible study here, and that uh, in in uh, Romans twelve it says, "Be conformed to to Christ. Don't be conformed to the world, but by the renewing of your mind, be conformed to the Lord." Right. That word conformed is used in Matthew seventeen one, where Jesus is transfigured. Same word. Now, does God want us to be transfigured like Jesus and have radiant clothes and all this stuff? No, we're not able to do that yet. Again, there's this parallel to the future and now. The future, it's physical. We are going to have that that new body, that new brilliance that God has prepared for us. But now it is in fact happening here. The purity, that transfiguration is happening positionally. See how God looks at you? This is how he looks at us. You see, in Hebrews 2.10, it says, For it was fitting for him, Jesus, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing, bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one father for this reason, He is not ashamed to call them brethren. See, we are sanctified positionally with God. This should bring us great hope, great faith, knowing that you are positionally in in a place that you could never bring yourself through your own good works. You can never bring yourself to any of this without Christ's resurrection and us being in him. He conforms us to himself. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. Are we conformed now? Yes and no. In God's judicial sight, we are. He sees Christ over us and in us. But we will fully ultimately be conformed at the end. You see, Kevin read um, about Mephibosheth. And I just think that is such an amazing story. If you don't know who King Saul is, is... He was the first anointed king over Israel. And when he was in a battle one time, he had several wives. 
When he was in a battle one time, um, his wife Jezreel um, took this young baby and tried to flee as they were getting invaded. This is in 2 Samuel 4. I'm paraphrasing here. And And while they were hurrying to flee, Mephibosheth fell apparently off the horse or whatever it was, and he became lame in both feet. He was unable to walk. This isn't a limp or a scurry. This is completely lame. I don't know what type of medical equipment they had back then, but he would have probably needed the equivalent of crutches or a walker or something like that to get around. And this was one of um, uh, Jonathan's, um, let me see here. Yes, it was uh, Saul's son. And so, I'm sorry, Jonathan's son. And so in 2 Samuel 9, 3 to 8, this is what Kevin read today. Is there not anyone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? And so there was still this one son that was sort of hiding out because he wasn't sure, you know, what David was going to do. I mean, even, even later on when the Gibeonites, who Saul had sinned against and did something to, the Gibeonites said, hey, listen, we want restitution for what Saul did to us. So bring us seven of his relatives so that we can hang them outside. Imagine that. Just somebody coming in, pulling you right out. What are you doing? Oh, well, you're related to this guy from like, I don't know, 50 years ago. And uh, he owes some, so we're going to hang you. So just to get them off her back. I mean, people being ripped out of their families. But David made sure that Mephibosheth was not one of those people. He saved him. He had compassion on him. But I love what it says. When he brought Mephibosheth before him, he fell on his face, face and prostrated himself. Prostrated himself. And he said, here is your servant. And David said, do not fear. I will surely show kindness to you for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And he said, you will eat at my table regularly. Now to eat at the king's table was a, 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 an extreme privilege. An extreme privilege. And so God is, it, is, when I think about this, I think of what we have in Christ. We have this, 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 this man, Saul, who is dead, Yet we have Jonathan, who's his representative, who is not even able to walk. You are not even able to walk to God. You can't, you, you can't even crawl. You need someone to pick you up and carry your body there. And that's what Jesus does for us. As a brother, as a brother, we are now able to come to that table, to God the Father's table, figuratively, and sit down and eat every single day and be treated like a brother, and of course, like a son. We may limp up to it, but God sees us as perfectly right and good and just. And he treats us like family. And so the last point I want to make is sort of a little bit of a curve. It says, I, I wrote here that the resurrection makes Jesus right with his purpose. Now, what was his purpose? His purpose was to redeem the world and to become king. Jesus just didn't come to save us from hell. He just didn't sneak, come in and say, all right, I need to get these souls before the world goes to destruction. That's not what he's saying. No, he says, I need to redeem these people and not save them from the world, but save them for the world and bring them out so that they can be the, the light of the world like God intended in the beginning. Israel was to be the light of the world. So Jesus, in order for that to happen, he had to become king of king, lord of lords over heaven and earth. 
Now, I'm not talking about God being providentially king over the world. That's fine. But there was a ransom that needed to be paid according to the law of God. And that ransom that had to be paid was something that no human being could ever pay, only God himself. And that's why he sent the son of God, the second person of the Trinity, into the world to become a man, to die, but to also be the one that Israel could not be and that Adam could not be. And that is that perfect human being to be the faithful Israelite, to be faithful to God. That's what Jesus was. So he was humbled, but then he was exalted on high to the right hand. And then when he took his seat at the right hand of God, now that doesn't mean there's a seat next to God up in heaven. Here you go. This is a figurative position of power, of equal authority. And so, like I said, holding on to Jesus interfered with these events at the hour. Jesus, his glorification was about to happen. You see, when they talk about the glorification of the Son of God, we're talking not just about the death, but we're talking about the resurrection and the ascension. That's the glorification of the Son of God, which brings God all the glory. So Jesus ascends to the Father. It's only complete once the ascension happens. So this is, in, this is incomplete here. But Jesus tells them here, I am going to ascend to the Father. He didn't say, go tell my brethren I've risen from the dead. Nope, he had already told them about that. And he told them about the ascension too, but he was standing there physically. But let them know I am going to ascend. You see, Jesus being vindicated in the ascension is the answer to the, to the question the disciples ask in Acts chapter one. You remember in Acts chapter one, again, this was Luke writing, Jesus is about to ascend on high, and right before he goes to, to ascend, the, the disciples say to him, hey, is now the time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he says, well, it's really not for you to know times or epochs or anything like that, but you're going to receive power from on high in a little while, and you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and uttermost parts of the earth. And then what happens is, is he ascends to the Father. That ascension is Jesus sitting as king which is the answer to the question, yes. Is now the time you're going to restore? Yes, we are restoring the kingdom to Israel, but this isn't looking like you thought it was going to look like. That's going to happen at the very, very end. There's now still a battle to be fought. And you guys are the ones going out and doing it, but you're going to have me living inside of you of the Holy Spirit. So he launches the kingdom and takes his rightful position, fulfilling the, the Daniel 7 prophecy. Behold, the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man, was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days. He was presented before him. And to him, Jesus, this is the ascension, this is what we see, was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and men, every language might serve him. And his dominion is a temporary dominion? No, it's an everlasting dominion from that point on. So there's no escaping it. His kingdom is one which will never be destroyed. And it was launched. But the ascension had to happen. This completed Jesus's purpose of coming. And so this ascension now puts us in our rightful position to the world. It puts us as our right. We are renewed humans now with our king in control, 
the Holy Spirit inside of us, new heart, new mind, new creature, we are now able to go out and impact the world. As Jesus went out and touched and things reversed, he made the lame walk. He made the blind see. He raised the dead. He made the leper pure. These are all pictures of what is the kingdom supposed to be like. We are to reverse the curse of sin through the love and through our actions by being the true image bearers. John 16, 5, remember this, but now I am going to him who sent me. This is what Jesus said. And none of you asks, where are you going? Where are you going? But because I said these things, sorrow has filled your heart. And then he says, if I don't go away, the Holy Spirit's not going to come. It's going to come and it's going to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. But how does the Holy Spirit do that? Jesus is ascends on high. He sends the Holy Spirit, not this smoky, mystical energy flying around. The Holy Spirit possesses Christians. And our job is to go out and convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment through the preaching of the gospel. And we can be that true gardener again, as Jesus was. Now, the, one of the unique aspects of this here is we can also be true messengers. Look at Mary in verse 18. Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he has said these things to her. Now, remember, we have over here two angels Now, we also have the, and I'm I'm assuming they're the same two angels when Jesus does ascend. Remember, after Jesus ascends in Acts chapter 1, everyone's going like, wow, where did he go? And the angels say, hey, why are you standing gazing up there? The same Jesus that you saw leave is going to come back in the same way. There was two angels. There's also two angels here at the tomb. Remember, Jesus said, this is echoing that that promise from the very beginning in John 1.51. Angels ascending and descending on the Son of God. You think that what you saw was good? Well, where do you see the angels ascending and descending on the Son of God? It's very curious. Some commentators think that this is what's implied with the angel sitting at the head and at the feet. And then, of course, we see that happening in Acts chapter 1. But the word announcing is the same word for angel. The Greek word is used 176 times for angel. It's used for three times for messenger. And it's used only one time for announcing. John could have used other words. But John, I believe, is showing us and making us a, making a very important point here. That he's playing this, off, the, the, this word off of the angels in the tomb. And now Mary becomes this angelic messenger of the ascension and of the resurrection. You see, Jesus now ascended, the one true Lord and King over all, now gives us this vocation as well as going out to be the messengers, to announce this gospel to the world. And so Mary is showing us that this role is not only, or John is showing us this role is not only given to Mary because he's bringing emphasis to this word, announcing. We are to go out there and we are now, because of the ascension, that's the message. 
Go and tell them that I ascend to the Father, to my God and your God, to my Father and your Father. Tell my brethren that I'm ascending. And she goes and she announces to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and she says all of these things. So as these messengers, as uh, renewed image bearers, we are to go out and tend the garden and announce the message. What is your garden? Is it your business? Is it your job? Is it your, is it your family? Is it your gifts of teaching? Is it your gift of serving? Is it your gift of giving? Is it hospitality? Is it some sort of calling that God has given you? Yes. Could it be all? Could it be one? But you are not to sit here and wait for that sky to open up. God wants you to get to work. He's done a lot to restore us back to where we need to be. He wants us to go out and announce and tend this garden. Announce it to the world. So Jesus or John, I guess here, telling us about the resurrection of Jesus. To give you some summary here and close. The resurrection makes us right with God. It gives us a right relationship with God the Father, truly as his adopted sons. A right relationship with Jesus as our brother. We are equal with him as it relates to coming to that table with God. He sees us as brethren. And of course, in a right relationship, Jesus is in his own vocation so that we can be right in our vocation. The ascension gives us the mandate to make the world right with God because Jesus is now Lord over all. The resurrection makes us right. The ascension allows us to go out and make the world right. So what does making the world right mean? Does that mean that we have to go out and force people to be converted into Christians? No. Does it mean that we have to go out and tell everybody they're sinning and they're, they're going to hell? Not necessarily. We do have to announce the, the gospel. We do have to tell them the truth about the gospel. We do have to let them know that if they don't repent and turn to Christ, that they will face him and they will only receive judgment. And that judgment is eternal separation from God in hell. Yes, we have to do all that. But as we go, as we go, we are to maintain. As we go, we are to go out. And where we find pain in this world, we have to meet it with love. Where we find suffering in this world, we have to go meet it with care and hospitality and be the hands and feet of Christ. That's what's making the world right. And maybe, it, maybe you are in politics, let's say. Then you need to, you need to go and, and say, this is wrong. This is right. Or maybe you're in education. This is wrong. That is right. Why? Because that's what the Bible says. And that's our ultimate standard of truth. Now, you may not be as direct as that, but you have to use wisdom. But this is what God has called you to do in your, right where you're at right now, with the people that you're around, your sphere of influence. Maybe it's prayer. Maybe it's something else. But you have to go to the Lord and say, Lord, use me. I don't care how young you are. I don't care how old you are. Moses wasn't used till he was 80. Josiah was eight when he made, was, was made king. So everybody's included here. So do that. And of course, first of all, be right with God. Because you can't go out. If you try to go out and make the world right without being first right with God, you're going to end up doing it for yourself. You're going to end up doing it and probably with some weird philosophy outside of the scriptures. 
but know that if you have Christ, if, you've, if you are his, that he will, in fact, use you to build for his kingdom. So let's stop there. And next week, uh, we'll start with chapter with verse 19. And we, we, we will stay on this theme of this remaking of the garden, this, this announcing, this sending that God is going to talk to us about next week. So let's pray. <clears throat> Father, thank you for making us right before, before you, Lord, because without Christ, God, we would be totally helpless and we would have nowhere to turn, nowhere to go. And Lord, we would probably just run according to our flesh. But you've made us new, Lord, by the blood of Christ and by the Holy Spirit. So God, please complete that work. Show us, Lord, each individually. How do we go out and make this world right? Give us the strategy, Lord. Let it first start with proclaiming the gospel. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.